Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want salon perfect nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny system, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny system with code PERFECTMANNY20 at olivenjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at olivenjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers, who they were, what they did, and how. Episode 107. I am your Norwegian host, Thomas Vyborg Thun. Tonight, we stay in the United Kingdom. But our subject does not have any Norwegian ancestry at least that I know of. He was a contemporary of Dennis Nielsen, killing and killing again just a few years before Nielsen started his career of murder. Unlike both Nielsen and Dahmer, tonight's expose will tell the tale of a man who not only made no attempts at showing remorse, but who reveled in his own notoriety. This was no wolf in sheep's clothing. This was just a wolf, a rabid one, whose name was Patrick Mackay. Do you dislike ads in your podcast content? I understand. But I have audio engineers and bills to pay, and considering the Serial Killer podcast is free to listen to, Sometimes I have to present some of my dear sponsors, but I do try to keep the ads to a minimum. So that's why this episode is 100% sponsored ad-free. This episode would not be possible if it hadn't been for my dear patrons who donate their hard-earned money every month. In return, my patrons get exclusive bonus content on Patreon. This includes episodes on torture, the death penalty, Norwegian Satanists, and a very special version of Monster Mash. 
more bonus content is coming real soon. So head on over to patreon.com slash the serial killer podcast now to get access. are for many people figures of comfort and forgiveness, but for some people they may represent a symbol that triggers brutal aggression. At least this is what police surmised had happened when they came upon the bloody crime scene in a cottage in the village of Shorn, in the region of Kent, United Kingdom around midnight on the 21st of March, 1975. Father Anthony Crean, 64 years old, lay dead in a bathtub, still fully dressed, the water around him red with blood from the open wounds to his head. A series of crimson spatters on the bathroom walls and ceiling indicated repetitive blows. Although it had taken him some time to die, as if the offender had wanted to watch the effects of his handiwork for as long as possible. It appeared that the priest had been hit with the sharp edge of an axe, splitting open his skull and exposing his brain. He'd been repeatedly stabbed as well, and there were fresh bruises all over his face. From all appearances, there was something deeply personal about this assault. Father Crean had been the chaplain for a Carmelite convent, and was regarded as a friendly and compassionate man by everyone who knew him. He believed that showing the love of Christ to wayward people would transform them. In 1973, he had shown a great deal of patience and kindness toward a young man who had repaid that kindness by breaking into the priest's home and robbed him. But, like the benevolent priest in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, who gave the escaped convict Jean Valjean the silver that he'd initially stolen, Father Crean continued to be tolerant. That was a dire mistake, for the young man found an easy target in the priest who tried to befriend him, a target he would turn all his aggression and hate upon when it bubbled to the surface in a red, remorseless rage. It did not take the police long to find the perpetrator of this bloody crime, because they knew about the priest's association with a neighborhood troublemaker. Within 48 hours, police had located him and placed him under arrest. He immediately confessed, offering unbelievable details about how he had watched the priest die. 
But it turned out that this bludgeoning was only the most recent of a long list of crimes, including other murders. What this man had to say for himself provides a stark study in the psychology of a psychopath. When arrested, the young man named Patrick David McKay told the police that he was a gardener but was currently without a job. The truth was, he'd had a number of jobs, none of which he could keep. He lived in London, he said, although he actually had no home. Only twenty-three years old, he'd seen and done a lot, most of it criminal in nature, and most of it violent. But before I continue telling of McKay's crimes, let us take a dive into his past, who he was, and where he came from. Born on the 25th of September, 1952, in England, Patrick McKay grew up in the home of a man who was an aggressive and violent alcoholic. No doubt Harold Harry McKay was unhappy in his occupation as an accountant and with his poor economic circumstances, which only worsened with his illness. On a routine basis, he would get drunk, come home to his wife, accuse her of imagined offences, and beat her up. In later years, the former World War II veteran would also turn on his son, although Mackay claims he never touched the two girls, Mackay's sisters. When McKay was ten, his father died from the complications of alcoholism and a weak heart, leaving the home in peace, but in a struggle to survive. Harry's final words to his son had been, and I quote, Remember to be good, an ironic admonition from a man who'd made his son's life a nightmare. Yet McKay was nevertheless traumatized not allowed to view his father's corpse or attend his funeral. He could not come to terms with the loss. He began to tell people that his father was still alive and kept a photograph of his father close to him at all times. It is plausible that Patrick felt extreme guilt over having wished his father dead on so many violence-filled nights, and he might have believed that he'd caused it in some way. Over the next few years, Patrick alienated those who might have given him solace. Often filthy from poverty and neglect and socially isolated, he developed into a bully against younger children, as is often the case when a victim decides to transform into someone with power. In addition, Mackay suffered from extreme tantrums and fits of anger. In school, Patrick was known as a liar and a troublemaker. As shared with so many other serial killers, he too turned his violence against small animals, including the family's pet tortoise, which he reportedly set on fire. One woman claimed that she had seen him pin birds to the road and then stand back to watch cars come and run them over, crushing them. In addition, he followed in his father's footsteps by drinking, 
which in turn inspired him toward greater aggression. He stole from people on the street and entered the apartments of elderly women to take what he could find. He also set fire to a Catholic church. This last fact, combined with what we know happened to the friendly priest Father Crean, leads me to suspect that Patrick might have been a victim of sexual abuse by the local Catholic church as a child. We know this happened in an alarming rate in the 1970s and earlier, and we also know that the church actively covered known cases up, choosing to protect the reputation of the church rather than justice for children. Another thing known to us today is that children who experience extreme trauma, especially if they are sexually abused, often grow up to act out in predatory ways themselves. None of the material I have researched for this episode mentions if McKay was in fact a victim of sexual abuse, but considering how marginalized he already was after his father's death, it is not implausible. Patrick's mother, Marion, allowed the state to place Patrick McKay in several different facilities for disturbed boys, but finally she had him removed and reunited with the family, against psychiatric advice, and she took her three children to the then British colony of Guyana in South America. But that was short-lived. The family did not settle well there, and soon they were back in London. They moved in with Harold McKay's sisters. The people now living together did not get along. Every day there were fights, and eventually Marion moved to the town of Gravesend. There, McKay got two short-lived jobs before going on public assistance. He continued to bully people. A child protective services officer predicted serious violence if McKay was not removed from the home. But others who knew the case decided to wait and see. Not long afterward, Patrick McKay attempted to strangle his mother and commit suicide. He told officials who questioned him that he lived with his father and often saw snakes. He was again evaluated for a mental illness and again released, whereupon he tried to kill a younger boy. He later said he'd have finished the job had he not been restrained. Mackay had from a young age a fascination with death. Apparently his father had regaled him with stories from the war about seeing his comrades shot down or blown up. Mackay himself spent a lot of time with the corpses of animals and birds. A neighbor saw him toss dead birds into the air and play with them. It's likely that he developed fantasies that involved the death process, which may have then become eroticized for him. Soon Mackay ended up in the first of several psychiatric institutions, and was finally recognized for what he was. A home office psychiatrist, Dr. Leonard Carr, examined his history and described him as, and I quote, a cold psychopathic killer. 
at the time, Patrick was only 15 years old. There were three possible hospitals in Britain that had special security protocols where Mackay could have been sent for incarceration and an indefinite period of treatment. In October 1968, he was committed to Moss Side Hospital in Liverpool as a diagnosed psychopath. There he went through a battery of tests to prepare him for therapy, and psychiatrists examined his bullying behavior, cruelty to animals, tendency to steal, truancy, social withdrawal, and penchant for setting fires. He'd been in trouble with the law by age 11, when he'd taken things from a neighbor and blamed someone else. The doctors also noted that his mother had been hospitalized for four months after a nervous breakdown, which, coupled with his father's death, must have made him feel utterly abandoned and alone. And there was an early probation report from juvenile court to the effect that the probation officer could not even comprehend the situation sufficiently to recommend a clear way to handle it. The official had believed that the boy would grow out of his fits eventually. But it seemed clear to the experts that McKay's anger and aggression were probably his way of surviving and the home environment just made them worse. Over and over, it seemed that officials had ignored the red flags that signaled increasing violence in this child. But this team of psychiatrists was hopeful that he might be turned around. From a test of his brain waves, he was found to be within normal levels for those factors that, during the 1970s, were believed to be involved in antisocial disorders. Nevertheless, one psychiatrist thought that he had a genetic defect inherited from his father that made him likely to be psychopathic. The disturbed relationship with his mother was thought to exacerbate this tendency. Some of his most violent fits had been around her. At that time, the late 1960s, there was no diagnosis for intermittent explosive disorder, now in the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. This is considered a disorder of impulse control in which there are aggressive outbursts, assaults, and property destruction well out of proportion to any stressors. Mackay certainly fits this pattern. While sometimes it seems uncharacteristic of the person, quite often, there are lesser incidents of aggression between the more intense outbursts. In any event, even during shorter stays at other hospitals and treatment centers between the ages of 11 and 14, a number of doctors believed that McKay ought to be admitted for a substantial inpatient observation, where he could undergo therapy. Most believed he was quite disturbed. Oddly, McKay would take a doll to bed with him at night, 
and pressured people to kiss it. He was clearly immature, and one psychiatrist even believed that the damage done to him was irreversible. Another predicted that he was a quote-unquote potential murderer of women. Most of them blamed his mother's ineffectual skills and her indifference to his problems. But then, it was an age in which mothers took most of the blame for childhood disorders, often where ignorance prevailed on causal factors, the easiest suspect was the mother. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's June already, my dear listeners. It feels like the days run away like wild horses over the hills. Luckily, we still have six more months of 2024. So, at the halfway mark, it's good to take stock. What are you proud of so far this year? What remains to be accomplished? Therapy can help you take stock of your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash serialkiller today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash serialkiller. The mental health experts believed that McKay was a psychopath without mania. In other words, he had a character disorder, but was not considered psychotic. An independent tribunal who interviewed him saw nothing wrong, most likely because what's wrong with such people doesn't manifest in obvious appearances or behaviors. McKay went through two extended periods of hospitalization in this place and was twice released despite psychiatric fears that he might be dangerous. His tendency towards violence was assisted by his growing obsession with the philosophies of National Socialism, Nazism. Patrick McKay worshipped Adolf Hitler and took a pseudonym, namely Franklin Bolvold I. He made himself a crude uniform, sticking emblems on it symbolic of the Nazi regime and purchasing stormtrooper boots. He considered himself quite powerful and believed that he would one day change the world. 
Despite obvious deranged and disturbing behavior, McKay was released from Moss Side at the age of 20 in 1972. It wasn't long before the real trouble began. Having learned no legitimate skills, McKay tried and failed at a few jobs, but nevertheless wanted to be independent of his mother. Around this same time, his sister was admitted to another institution after a psychotic breakdown that she blamed on him. Knowing this, it's thus a fact that out of five members of the McKay family, four had a history of psychological imbalances. McKay moved in with friends in London and spent most of his time in a drunken state or on drugs. He had tried to live with his mother and found that he could not, in part because she gave him grief about not paying for his board. But he also had difficulty with everyone else with whom he tried to live, including his aunts and his friends. Because of his moods, threats, and irresponsibility, they all ended up wanting him out. Among the things that frightened others was McKay's habit of building models of the Frankenstein monster from Mary Shelley's novel, sticking pins in it and burning out the eyes. He continued to be fascinated with the Nazis and would wear his homemade uniform, complete with an armband, and set about collecting Nazi books and memorabilia. He was fascinated by the extermination of the Jews and worried about his own mixed blood. Next to his bed, he kept a picture of Himmler. If you didn't know, dear listener, Himmler was the Nazi leader of the notorious Schutzstaffel, or SS, the men responsible for performing all the most heinous crimes of the Third Reich, including the genocide of an estimated six million Jews, homosexuals, and gypsies. Having no particular long-term goals, he met sporadically with his government job center caseworker who gave up attempting to set him appointments. He often lost his jobs. At times, he burglarized homes to get some food, cigarettes, and money. He had few friends, but then he met Father Crean. Mackay was walking in the woods near his mother's home when he came across a Carmelite convent, the home of eight nuns who took in geriatric patients. Father Crean and his dog lived in a cottage nearby. He made it a point to befriend people who looked like they needed a friend, and Mackay fit that category. But no one can really befriend a bona fide psychopath. They simply do not have the emotions required for true bonding. Crean bought McKay a drink in a local pub, and eventually they were meeting there regularly. But McKay couldn't resist his criminal impulses, so he broke into the priest's home and stole a check for thirty pounds. Crean reported it, and McKay was arrested. Crean did not wish to prosecute, 
but the police did. So the case went to court, and McKay was ordered to repay the priest. He said he would, but never did. This incident caused a rift between them, and McKay returned to London. There he went through a succession of jobs and places to stay, ended up in a jail, and was given a slight fine and suspended sentence for yet more criminal conduct. In short, he got away with more aggression, in part because the system simply did not know what to do with someone with this erratic and potentially dangerous temperament. They had no resources for it, and no way to warrant detaining him. It is not proven 100%, but it's more than likely that by this time McKay had already killed five people, doing so in the final months of 1973. He later admitted to drowning a tramp in the River Thames. No charges were filed on these murders, as there was no physical evidence that connected McKay to them. But for a murder in February 1974, It was a different story. That month, McKay was following his usual course of breaking and entering when he went into a home in the Chelsea area of London. There he encountered 84-year-old Isabella Griffiths. Accounts differ here. One source says that she was walking down the street, carrying bags of groceries, and when McKay helped her, she invited him in and they struck up an apparent friendship. Another source simply states that he showed up at her door, and she let him in. Just before the incident, he had tried committing suicide, but was picked up by the police. A psychiatrist spoke with him and concluded that he was not mentally ill, despite his extensive record of psychiatric observation. He believed that McKay had a personality disorder, and ordered him to a ward for observation. McKay seemed to adjust quickly, so longer detention was not deemed necessary. He was released from the hospital on Valentine's Day, the 14th of February, and he was now more dangerous than he'd ever been. He went directly to the home of Isabella Griffiths, who told him she did not need any assistance that day. He pushed his way in any way, and in a matter of moments had strangled her. There was no apparent reason for it, other than the fact that he was angry that she had not invited him inside when he arrived. He dragged the body into the kitchen, wandered around for a bit, and then decided to take out his wrath for imagined insults by mutilating her corpse. He found a twelve-inch kitchen knife and stabbed her in the stomach, leaving the knife in her. Feeling better, he grabbed some food and drink and listened to the radio in her front room. The place was his now, for the time being, and he intended to enjoy it. Then, oddly, he considered killing himself. He removed the knife from the body and looked at it. Then he changed his mind. In a strange mood now, he arranged the corpse for greater comfort, closing the eyes and covering it. Then he placed dishes into the sink 
along with some shoes, and turned on the water. Stealing only a cigarette lighter, he took the knife, left the house, and tossed the weapon into some bushes along the way. Miss Griffith's body lay on the floor for nearly two weeks before someone found her. Oddly, the police thought she had died from natural causes, even though she had clearly been covered by someone else. Then police discovered the stab wound, and the case was turned over to homicide detectives, the so-called murder squad. They appealed to the public for information, but few people knew the victim, and there were no clues at the scene, so the case went unsolved. Once again, McKay had gotten away with violence. There would be more. During the next year, McKay took hospitality from a grudging social worker who was ordered to take him in. According to him, McKay would talk endlessly about his violent fantasies and wonder if he was possessed by demons. He pondered dark subjects, and eventually he was forced to leave the social worker's home. Once again, he was on the streets, begging from relatives, none of whom wanted him near them. He went back to the social worker, robbed him, and was arrested once again. He served four months in prison and was released on the 22nd of November, 1974. By then, he'd had time to form a plan to pay society back for its neglects of people like him. At first, he mugged women, often charming them into trusting him, and then decided to find out where the elderly rich women lived to rob their homes. He had not forgotten how easy it was to gain entry into Isabella Griffith's home. McKay apparently enjoyed the feeling of power he derived from killing her, because on the 10th of March, 1975, he knocked on the door at the home of 89-year-old Adele Price. She offered him a glass of water, so he followed her into her flat. As she got the water for him, he came up behind her and strangled her, letting her fall to the floor face down. She still wore her overcoat. McKay reported later in a confession that this murder had given him a quote-unquote peculiar feeling that lasted for several days and had something in common with the other murders he'd committed. Afterward, he lay down on Miss Price's couch and took a nap. He was woken by the sound of someone trying to come in, the victim's granddaughter, who also lived there. When she couldn't enter, she went to call from a hallway phone, and McKay ran out, passing her on the stairs. But because others lived in the house, there was no reason for her to remember him. Adele Price's death was initially believed to have been the result of a heart attack, but suspicious things about the apartment soon changed its status to murder. Because McKay had no connection to the victim, the police had a difficult time finding a perpetrator, so 
the crime went unsolved, and Mackay continued on his deadly way. He went in and out of yet another mental institution because he'd tried to kill himself, and five days after he killed Adele Price, he was ready to do it again. After being teased by his friends over his former association with Father Crean, which they hinted had been a homosexual liaison, Mackay decided to go to Kent and find the priest. He had a plan for putting an end to this derisive talk. On Friday, the 21st of February, he sought out Crean and killed him. In his confession, Mackay described his experience that day. He had taken two knives with him on the train from London, so this time he was prepared. He first went to his mother's home and told her to cook a chicken he'd brought. Then he walked down to the convent. He claimed that Father Crean's door was slightly ajar, so he entered and called to his former friend. When Crean saw him, he attempted to leave, but Mackay stopped him. They struggled, rousing Mackay's anger, so he attacked. First he used his hand and fist to knock the priest in the face. Crean got loose and ran into the back room, probably to lock himself inside. Mackay caught up to him before he could manage it, pushing his way in and causing Crean to fall backwards into the bathtub. Mackay continued to hit him with his hand, and then used a knife to stab him in the neck and the side of the head. But when he tried shoving the blade into the top of Crean's skull, he failed. I grabbed for the axe, Mackay said, and with this repeatedly lashed out with it at his head. That made the priest, who'd been sitting to ward off the blows, lay back into the tub. Mackay says that he then went out of his mind and just kept attacking. I quote, It was something in me that just exploded, end quote. He bludgeoned Crean on the face and head and watched the man's skull crack open. Then, as Crean lay helpless and alive, Mackay put in the plug and turned on the water sitting on the edge to watch his victim struggle helplessly, unable to control his body movements. Time passed. It took Crean nearly an hour to finally realize he was going to die. He touched his skull, feeling his exposed brain, which Mackay found highly erotic. Then Father Crean expired. Mackay watched the body for another quarter of an hour, completely fascinated with it, and then returned to his mother's to eat the dinner she had made him. Late that night, one of the nuns discovered Father Crean's blood-covered corpse and called the police. They had a good idea about who might have done it. Patrick Mackay was quickly arrested at the home of a friend. Thanks to a tip, the police tracked him down and got him talking. He confessed in under a half an hour. 
the same officer who had arrested him two years earlier for robbing. Father Crean nabbed him again. Around the same time, someone else matched a fingerprint from one of the area robberies to Mackay. With all of this against him, he went to Brixton Prison to be held for trial. At first he admitted to three murders, the two elderly women and the priest. He was appointed a solicitor, Robin Clark, who believed he had a good case for the insanity defence. Mackay certainly had a long record of mental imbalance. But when Mackay told inmates of other murders he'd committed, this information got back to the detectives, who once again began to interrogate him. Others with unsolved killings on the books came as well. In all, Mackay confessed to having taken the lives of eleven people over a period of two years. The list included a woman stabbed in the throat on a train, three elderly women bludgeoned in their homes, a woman and her grandson stabbed in their apartment, a man thrown into the river, and a man bludgeoned in his shop as he closed up for the night. But, unfortunately, Mackay later recanted all of these confessions. In prison, he was subjected to psychiatric assessment. Several opinions were offered on his state of mind during the times when he committed the crimes with which he'd been charged. Most of them agreed that Mackay was a psychopath. He had a personality disorder, not a mental illness. He knew what he was doing, he knew that it was wrong, and he felt no remorse. Judged sane by psychiatrists and fit to plead, Mackay was brought to the Old Bailey to have his case settled. He was charged with three of the murders on the 21st of November, 1975. To avoid a costly trial, the prosecution agreed to a deal where Mackay pled guilty to manslaughter. The judge pronounced sentence. He called Mackay a quote-unquote highly dangerous man and sentenced him to life in prison. He sent Mackay to Wormwood Scrubs Prison. Patrick Mackay is still alive and is not that old at 67 years. He is one of the longest-serving prisoners in the UK, having been incarcerated for all of 44 years. As of April this year, 2019, he has been able to change his name and has earned the right to be moved to an open prison, the first step on the road to being fully released. If and when he does so, it will be anonymously. At least, that is, until he strikes again. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. 
Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And so ends the saga of Patrick McKay. I hope you enjoyed listening to me telling it to you. Next week, I will bring you episode 108 and a fresh new serial killer expose. So, as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. This podcast would not be possible if it had not been for my dear patrons who pledge their hard-earned money every month. There are especially a few of those patrons I would like to thank in person. These patrons are my 19 most loyal patrons, Many of them have contributed for at least their last 43 episodes, and their names are Maud, Amber, Anne, Cassandra, Christina, Claudette, Cody, Evan, Jennifer, Jill, Kathy, Lisa, Elizabeth, Mark, Mickey, Philip, PJ, Sam, and Troy. You really helped produce this show, and you have my deepest gratitude. Thank you. If you wish to join this exclusive club of TSK producers, go to theserialkillerpodcast.com slash donate and pledge $15 or more to have your name read live on this show. Finally, I wish to thank you, dear listener, for listening If you like this podcast, you can support it by donating on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast, by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, facebook.com slash theskpodcast, or by posting on reddit.com slash theskpodcast. Thank you, good night, and good luck. (laughs) 